I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Oh, guys, welcome back to Nova Conversations podcast. This is Laura. And in this episode, I'm so excited to share it with you. It's an interview I did with Karina Newsom, and it was just mind-blowing. Like everything she said, I was like, oh, I could talk about this one particular topic for an hour because it was so good. So we touch on a whole bunch of different topics, everything from representation in the wildlife sector for people who aren't just like me, white and fairly privileged, and how it's essential to see other people in wildlife and conservation who look like you if you're going to work in the sector. People do what they know. And if we're going to diversify conservation, as we should, we need more and more people to break into the industry who don't have the same backgrounds and privileges as many of us do. So that was a great topic, first of all. Second, we talk about Jesus and Christianity and how that relates to climate change, activism, protecting the earth, protecting the marginalized groups, and loving people in general. And as a Christian myself, that is so near and dear to my heart. So I'm really glad Karina and I get to talk about that. And lastly, we talk about helping where you are locally. So getting invested in the local communities and really making that local impact, which goes back to Maria's interview from earlier in the history of our podcast. It's episode five, which is called Listen, Learn, and Conserve Locally. Like I said, I just love this conversation. Karina is a gem. I hadn't met her before this interview, so it was so nice to meet her and hear her story face-to-face. And um, yeah, we just talk about so much. I hope she'll come back on So, because I really want to unpack a lot of this information, a lot of these topics a little bit more in-depth. But Karina, if you're listening, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. You are awesome. And it was just amazing to have you on and hear all the details and all the wisdom and knowledge that you dropped. Thank you. Before we get into the actual interview, I wanted to mention one thing, and that is that I have been thinking about starting a nonprofit. I'm going to probably put that on pause for a few reasons, but mainly the reason is because I just discovered that there is a nonprofit doing this work in equity and inclusion and diversity in the conservation sector specifically. There's an organization called Conservation Nation, which is a branch of the Friends of the Smithsonian Zoo. And I recently heard a podcast from Conservation Careers Podcast where Lynn Mento, the CEO, was interviewed and it just blew my mind. I was like, thank goodness there is a nonprofit doing this work. So A, I don't have to start one (laughs) and do it myself. And also they're really well established and they are already making huge headway with million dollar grants to allow other people to break into the industry. And 
I'm just blown away. They're doing amazing work. So go to conservationnation.org and you can check them out. My only regret is that I didn't know about them sooner or else I would have been telling people about them. And then the other things I want to say are just basically thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to join our Patreon community, we would love to have that. I'm doing so many things that I feel like my mind is spinning a little out of control right now. It's also spring, which means field work. So I am busy in the field, which is great. I love it, but it's early mornings and with that and sick kids and all sorts of other things going on, tons of grants that I'm writing, um, events coming up, trips planned that I've just been a little bit behind on the podcast, a little bit behind on social media. So if you don't hear from me as much, that's why I just have lots going on. However, your support through the Patreon community is awesome and essential. So thank you for that. And if you'd like to donate directly without becoming a Patreon, you can go to my website, novaconservation.com and click on donate. There's a direct link to Venmo page where all of those funds go back to conservation. So please donate to that if you can, if you have a chance. If you enjoy hearing stories like this, getting the message out about diversity and inclusion and conservation, but also that sense of empowerment. Actually, that's something that I want to talk about a little bit more, um, and I'll probably do a long-form episode on it in the future. This tension between, you know, giving a handout, which is not something you want to just do to anyone, um, regardless of what their background is, but also recognizing that there are issues and barriers and cultural ideologies that have prevented certain people from getting into certain sectors of work, namely conservation. So there's definitely a motion of empowerment that goes into, you know, doing something yourself and working from the ground up and earning the revenue however you can to pay for that first course or pay for that field trip or do the work on the side so you can do an unpaid internship or something like that. But also, how are you able to be empowered if you don't know that these types of problems exist, if you don't know that this type of work exists, if you don't know that you're capable of doing that, if no one's told you, if there's been no representation in your community that says, hey, you can be a biologist, hey, you can be a conservationist. And so I think that's, we can have both. We need both. We need that empowerment piece where anyone is capable of doing something if they put their mind to it. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. There's enough money in the world so redistribute it and get it to conservation or get it to your pockets. Yes, you can do that. You are empowered. But at the same time, there are certain barriers that prevent people from getting out there and doing that. So bringing both of those together and holding them together is the nuance that I want to explore in this podcast. There's such a great um, podcast and video YouTuber called um, Brenda Marie Davis, and she started a, an organization called In the Gray. It used to be called God is Gray, but now it's not as specific to religious um, topics. But she really does dive into this tension of hearing people's perspective and exploring all sides of an issue. You know, I have my perspective and I have my thoughts on what I think is right and good and true and ethical and valuable but I'd like to hear from all points of view so that we can come together to make the best decision and then 
you know, I'm, I'm supposed to present you with the information that you can make your best mind up. I think what hinders us is when we just see a clip on social media, a clip on YouTube, a short meme or a, a quip on Twitter, and then you make a life decision from that short, sometimes taken out of context information. And we all have preconceived notions and biases. So yeah, I, I'm saying this specifically with regard to the unpaid internship model. There is this kind of fight against people who are already conservationists calling out other conservationists for not paying their interns. And I agree. I think it's horrible. I don't like that, but that happens. It does. I think many times that can be exploitative. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. Um, but I also think that we're blaming the wrong people. We're blaming other conservationists, other hardworking nonprofits, many of whom get paid next to nothing. And then they're supposed to turn around and pay other people more than they get paid. It, it, it's just not an easy solution. It's not as easy as pay your interns, pay your tax, whatever. We need to have a more in-depth discussion about tangible solutions. So we're not just calling out the wrong people and calling out the wrong problems. The systemic problem goes back to something deeper, something based in capitalism. And it's not an easy fix, guys. So let's work together. We can do it. We can solve these problems. Support your local communities. Support your local nonprofits. Support your local conservationists. And also know that you are capable of doing whatever you set your mind to. So with that being said, I'll stop my rambling and get to my interview with Karina Newsom. Welcome back to Nova Conversations. It's me, Laura, and I'm here with Karina Newsom. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself, Karina. What's your story? What do you like to tell people when you first meet them? What's your, uh, maybe a favorite field story or just a favorite fact? What do you like to share when you're like, hey, I'm Karina? Yeah, well, uh, hello, I'm Karina. Laura, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and uh, a joy to be here and talking with you. Um, I'm an ornithologist or a person who studies birds, I'm a biologist who studies birds, and I currently work as the community engagement manager at Georgia Audubon and just graduated from Georgia Southern University with a master's in biology. And so um, a lot of my work and a lot of my life has been centered around wildlife in general. Um, the beginning of my career was working in animal care as a zookeeper for several years and all of my internships were in zoos. Um, and uh, I grew up though in a really urban environment in Philadelphia. And uh, because of that, I didn't have a lot of contact with wildlife or like direct uh, observations of wildlife. I had lots of books. I had lots of um, movies and encyclopedias and TV shows that I love that really fed my passion and my parents and my grandma and everybody really stoked the fire for me. Even though I was the biggest animal fanatic, they definitely gave me the tools to be able to really harness that love of wildlife. Um, and then, you know, I, I got all my information that way. But unfortunately, throughout the course of my childhood, my love for wildlife wasn't actually enough to really propel me into the direction of a career in wildlife science, which is what I wanted to do since I was a child. I wrote a note to myself when I was five that I still have at home in Philly that says, when I grow up, I wanna be an astronaut and I wanna be a scientist on bugs and animals. So like I had a bit of vocational clarity 
from oh, the time, wow. yeah, I was a kid. And I was, you know, so, but over the course of like growing up, like, of course, life feeds you information about what's possible and you construct a, a perception of what you can and can't do and subconsciously as well, both consciously and subconsciously. And by the time I was about to graduate high school, choosing colleges and things like that, I, I had really not even, I knew nothing about how to be a wildlife biologist. I knew no biologists and I had never seen a biologist who was not white, which actually was very impactful. I didn't even realize how impactful, actually, until um, a member of my church came up to me, Black man, and he said, Mr. Mark Garrett, he was like, my sister works at the zoo. I heard you like animals. Here's her number. You should call her. And I was like, but like, the, the crazy thing was my first response to that was like, I was I was like annoyed because I'm like, she doesn't do anything with animals though. Like she can't because she's black. Like that's, that was in my head. I didn't say this, but I was like, yeah, immediately yeah, sure. like, yeah. yeah, I was like, she can't help me. Um, which was my huh. first thing that was like, wow, this is what only seeing white scientists has done to my mind without me knowing. Mm -hmm. And then once I, I called her and she invited me to the zoo it, and it turned out that she was the top keeper for carnivores, the lead keeper for carnivores and like creating breeding plans for endangered carnivores. And I was like, I, I literally remember that moment. Like it was an actual physical reaction that I had that I was like, I never even pictured myself doing that. Like um, as long as I've loved wildlife, as much as I've loved wildlife, I never pictured myself doing something like she's doing until that moment. And I was like, I cannot believe how powerful that imagery has been over the course of my childhood of not seeing black people or any people of color. Representation. Yeah. So yeah. And now and look so, at you, you yeah. can do this for so many other young women, young yeah. black kids who want an inspiration. Representation is so important. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And so like every, literally every time I have the chance to encounter a young black child or a child of color, that's the, the, the memory that plays in my head is what happened to me when I saw a black woman doing the conservation work. So that's kind of my, my background and that like propelled me into the world of conservation first starting in zoos and then doing field biology. Um, but I fell in love with birds. Like they're my favorite group of, of animals. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's easy to love them. So that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's nice. And um, so whenever people are like, you know, tell me something, you know, tell me something about what you know or like whatever. One of the things I love to share, um, and one of my most, the most fascinating elements of like bird behavior for me is migration. And so we are constantly in a state of change. So like either we have winter residents, like right now we have winter residents that aren't going to be here in a couple months, or we're in the middle of migration where a bunch of birds are flying through, or we've got summer residents that won't be here in the winter. So there's always change happening, but if you don't know that it's happening, you can miss it. And it's, it's incredible. So I'm always like, the first thing I do is like, have you all ever seen this bird? Well, guess how far it migrates. Guess where it came from. Guess where it's going. And I love sharing information about the movement of birds and their behavior when it comes to migration. Yeah. I have to say, first of all, I love your passion and enthusiasm. Like I can totally relate and I'm feeding off of it, especially because I like woke up in the middle of the night last night and I couldn't sleep. And now I'm feeling like it's kind of gross and groggy and I'm like, but I'm getting energy from you. <laughs> Thank you oh, for feeling my passion about talking about birds and migration. I, I love talking about migration too, specifically because yeah, I like what you said about the change and flux. Like every time you go birding, there's something new going on outside. Mm -hmm. Um, it never gets old. And then like I, conservation 
it's a gateway to conservation. Like if you can talk about how birds migrate, how far they go, how they need stopover and how they need to get food and, and get acquire fat and all of the things that they need along their journey. I would say, I always say birds are the gateway drug to conservation because they, they really are <laughs> gets you to think about what we're doing to our planet in yes. a different way that a lot of people have had. Have you experienced that? Like when you go out and you teach, so you're the, the outreach coordinator, is that correct? For Georgia Community Audubon. engagement manager. Community engagement mm -hmm. man manager for um, Georgia Audubon. And have you experienced that when you encounter, I mean, kids, adults even? Like I oh, love yeah. seeing adults get excited about birds. Yeah, yeah. I, and one of like, I love kids, uh, educating kids, but one of my favorite things to do is to talk to adults because they've had a whole, you know, lifetime of experiencing outside in various ways and have, you know, different perceptions and opinions and knowledge about birds and to like, throw something that they never knew their way, right? It's so, I love it. And it, it usually is about migration when I'm like, oh, that little ruby-footed hummingbird that you see flying around your yard sometimes, like that bird flies over the Gulf of Mexico to get to its breeding. Mm -hmm. Like this time, you know what I mean? And when I share just like little tidbits and there's endless amounts of information that I can talk mm -hmm. about. I struggle to pick what to share most of the time, but like to see the the wonder on their face and it, it always, every time like prompts so many questions from everybody and then it just turns into this like information sharing passion sharing like oh so does that mean this and so what does this mean and you know people like really digging into their own observations and thinking about what they've noticed and you know asking questions about it and i just love when people's world comes to life when they're able to have access to information about birds mm, that's such a powerful thing i i do sometimes like get a little bit like i love birds but sometimes i get sick of talking about them if you know what i mean mm. like like Here's the, here's an example. I was being I was interviewed for a podcast um, recently, and they're asking me all these questions about birds, and I'm like, I love birds, and I get to know them, but I don't know every single fact about birds. There are like twenty seven thousand species, and don't get me wrong, I'm just like I could talk about birds all day, but at the same time, how is one person to know everything about birds? Like once you label yourself an ornithologist. Yeah. It's like, oh, so you, you know about this bird and this, and I'm like, no, I don't know everything. I'd be the first to admit, I do not know everything. Yeah. I, yeah. I like talking about conservation holistically lately. And that's kind of like, this podcast is, is really valuable for me to have these one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who are doing conservation work, who are making the change, that impact. Um, and I want to dive into that too. So yeah. like... Yes, we could talk about birds. And we probably will circle back to talking about birds. Your spark bird is a blue, blue jay. My spark yes. bird was a tufted titmouse. Once I like, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it like landed on my porch, and I was in college already. I was trying to figure out. I knew I wanted to study biology, but I didn't know if I wanted to like study salamanders or what. Mm. And the little tufted titmouse was like puffy and landed on my deck, and I identified it. I figured out what it was and then from there on it was just like took off yeah oh that's beautiful yeah mm -hmm. tough to tip mice are amazing <laughs> yeah. except for in the net you, they're really they're hard fighters they're, oh they're aggressive yes. little feisty yes for sure <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you so besides doing the um community how can I can how come I keep forgetting this community engagement manager Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you do, so that involves some outreach, but it also, what else does it involve? Like you, you talked about a, a little bit about this park that was 
owned by the government that used to be owned by black people, the land was taken away. What's what, how does that fit into your work with Georgia Audubon? Yeah, so um, part of Georgia Audubon's mission um, as a whole is to build places where birds and people thrive. And mm -hmm. they are operating with understanding that wildlife conservation, you can make management decisions, you can conserve wildlife in a couple of different ways. You can do it in a way that you know, benefits wildlife and hurts people, which has happened and continues to happen to this day you know, through nonprofit conservation, governmental conservation, all of that. Or you can do it in a way that really does center communities, in particular those who have been most um, uh, impacted and are most vulnerable to environmental issues and you know, environmental injustices and economic injustices, right? Vulnerable communities. And George Audubon is positioning itself to, to do conservation and contribute to conservation that way. And there are, depending on where you are in the world, like there are different kind of social um, uh, realities that people are living in in which conservation is happening. And I'm in Georgia, we're in Atlanta, Georgia, we're based, but um, Georgia as a state has all kinds of incredible species of birds that are being conserved in a variety of different ways. It has all kinds of different communities of people, uh, but there are also ongoing intersections between social injustice and conservation. And Harris Neck National Wildlife Refuge is an example of that. And it's a current example of that. And that, that land that is now a wildlife refuge used to be, as you said, a, a community, a freedman community. So they were enslaved people and then they, and then they weren't and they were, they were uh, freed and they were given that, they had that land. They, they owned that land and they used the land for their resources. They stewarded the land. They grew up, you know, they, they had generations of, of uh, um, families on that land. And then during World War II, the government took that land through eminent domain. Um, and there was, the, the community describes the fact that they were not, their families were paid at a, a, a rate less than the white landowners. And they were given two weeks to leave. Their houses and crops were burned. Like it was a very drastic taking and many of them were left homeless. And I, I recently had like a many, many hours conversation with a, a man who's now in his, in his 80s, Mr. William Moran, who was born literally in the pine forest next to Harris Neck because they were homeless. He was literally born in the forest. Um, mm -hmm. His mother was pregnant, like about to give birth and they kicked them out. And so like just so many injustices happened. And since then, in the 1940s, they've been fighting to get that land back. They've um, demonstrated, they've been, you know, petitioning the government. And so George Audubon is trying to figure out, you know, okay, this community is dedicated to conservation. Like they don't want, they're not trying to get the land and, you know, build, you know, build and, and destroy habitat. No, they care about that habitat probably more than anybody, right? Um, but George Audubon is trying to advocate for equitable outcomes for this community to be able to have that, you know, that, that land or even a portion of it, which is what they're asking for, where their burial grounds are. They have cemetery that's in the refuge. They have structures that belong to their, you know, land that belong to their family that's in the refuge now. And so um, there are many examples of that across the country, across the world, where there are these intersections between harm that's been done to black and brown or low wealth communities, especially indigenous communities, and in the name of conservation. Um, and so, yeah, my work extends from, you know, kind of more, I guess you could say, there are high stakes in this kind of a, a, an issue from that to, you know, what communities say in the Atlanta area have not been engaged by Georgia Audubon because of the way Georgia Audubon has functioned in the past, like having a really kind of elite, you know, wealthy white constituency. How can we make our resources available and accessible to communities that we have failed to engage in the past yeah. um, in a way that's relevant to them, not in any sort of like savior swooping in, this is what you need, this is what you need yeah. to know. 
um, you know, they have relationships with their birds. Everyone knows about something about birds, right? How can we just make the resources that we have at our disposal available and accessible to them? And that depends on the community, depends on the context. But my work really centers around building relationships with communities and figuring out how can Georgia Audubon support their vision for their community or um, at all contribute to what they would like to see realized where they live and where they work and where they engage with birds. So that's that's kind of the, the scope of what my work at Georgia Audubon involves. That's beautiful. And I think it's so cool because um, I don't know if you felt this way, but like I, when I started off in conservation and biological work, I'm like, I want to study animals. I want to study birds. I know what I want to do. But as you learn more and more about the environmental impacts, the injustices being done. It's like, okay, I'm not just doing this for the birds. I'm doing this because I love people and I want, I care about people and I care about not just bi biodiversity of life, but biodiversity of humanity. Uh, we need to have this rich cultural biodiverse world and hear from everyone, not just the white people, not just yeah. us. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it's, it's you, you realize that, and this is the case in I think we're finding in many science disciplines and disciplines outside of the science world where it's like, wow, we're realizing how much harm is done when you have a very homogeneous decision-making party, right? Like when everyone's from the same cultural, socioeconomic background, you miss a lot and you can cause a lot of harm that way. So um, yes, it, it's be, being intersectional in, in our thinking about these conservation issues is like paramount. And I continue to learn more and more about how to actually apply that knowledge. Yes. Totally agree. And I thought I had had this like original idea. I was like, oh, biodiversity of populations and biodiversity of like people and communities and cultures and things like that. And then I was watching a video from you and you said the exact same thing. And I was like, yeah, we, we, we're tracking. We're on the same yeah, page. Yeah. <laughs> I have no original ideas. Never mind. No, no. I, th I mean, but there is, you know, as you could describe it, like kind of convergent evolution of people, depending on where you are coming to these realizations of like, Wow, okay, so like there's a lot at stake here. There's a lot of intersecting threads to problem solving. And, you know, so I'm sure there's people in other places who've never heard of me or you or heard us like are coming to these like, wow, here are the parallels between these values of diversity. Yes, and I love how yeah. you worded it too in the, in the video um, and you probably word it better, but you basically said, because we know biodiversity from an ecological standpoint, the more biodiverse we are, the more um, resilient we are as a community. So mm -hmm. an ecosystem is just more resilient the more species there are and the more diverse it is. And you said the same thing with humanity, like the, mm -hmm. that we're more resilient when we're more diverse. And yeah. it's, it's just a beautiful way of looking at it. So, <laughs> so um, question, uh, a question I wanted to ask is in your opinion and in, in your thoughts, why is conservation so white? What's the so, problem with conservation? Yeah, so in the US and, and in kind of Western context, I'll say specifically in the US, I think that for, I mean, conservation, who makes decisions about it and what it looks like and how it is applied, I think stems from the history of this country, number one, with, you know, for example, the, you know, the, the way that resources were extracted when this country was founded after, you know, as indigenous people were, were wiped out and their cultures wiped away, um, there was just this massive over-exploitation by the, you know, Europeans who colonized this land. Um, and then that created an, an environmental emergency. And it, th that kind of behavior has been repeated in a variety of contexts, whether you're talking about the now extinct passenger pigeon, 
where you're talking about the overuse of, of, of pesticides and things that, you know, to, to, to maximize our crop, you know, like all these efforts that have been undertaken that have overexploited our land and natural resources and people um, have been in large part done by colonizers, the, the people who colonize this land, Europeans, and they were also the people in power, right? So they made decisions about what was exploited. They also made decisions about, oh, we've gone too far. Let's now create these walled off sections of land that people can no longer live on and, and you know, in response to the problem that they caused, right? So you have this dynamic where the same people who caused the problem are the same people who have the power to make decisions about how that problem is addressed. And it like feeds, it's a power dynamic that feeds on itself. It like, it does not, allow for the input or the expertise or the lived experiences or the values of anyone else really um, when you continually center that same demographic that same you know um, class and, and, and group of people and in like even to this day to get into conservation right it, I mean it's changing slowly it's not exactly what it was many you know decades ago but to get into conservation oftentimes it's who you know right who do you know that's in like I just so happened to get connected because again, a church member who knew my mom, who heard that I like animals, happened to have a sister. Without that, I would not be here for a variety of reasons, but that, that she put a good word in for me. She's like, hey, give her an internship. Like, hey, she, she would be good. She knew nothing about me. She took a chance on me, right? It's a lot about who you know. And so if you already have the power that's been passed on, like your family knows these people or you have access to spaces where there's power, you're going to be much more likely to be able to get into any space. Um, and then, you know, for example, when it comes just to the, 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 the hard, you know, requirements to be a, a animal care specialist or a biologist or any of these things, there are requirements um, of experience. And so many times, like this experience requires you to work for years unpaid, which automatically filters out people from low wealth communities and disproportionately therefore impacts black and brown communities. And so you have all of these different mechanisms that filter out people who are from low wealth backgrounds, people who are black, indigenous, people of color, um, and just kind of, again, perpetuates the same cycle of homogeneity in, in the conservation space. And, and you know, you could take so many different angles about why it looks the way that it does, but as we described, like that is going to ultimately be harmful to conservation itself because, you know, like when you, when you exploit people and you don't have, and you, have, you put people in desperate situations, you're ultimately going to end up harming the natural resources in the in the long run as well. Um, so yeah, so that that's that's really what I would say. That's a long answer, oh, <laughs> and I could go on probably for hours about this. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that question. I know. So, um, have you ever read a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn? I've not. I, I just heard of it for the first time recently, and I read it. Okay, so it was written in 1992. So it's, it's about 30 years old. Okay. The population of the planet was 5 billion at that time. Okay. Like wow. maybe between five and 6 billion. Okay. But I, so the, the basic concept is, because it's fresh on my mind, I just finished it. But the basic concept is that um, there are two, he kind of goes into a dialogue of like why, why we are the way we are in our current culture and society and how it relates to environmentalism and the destruction of the planet and things like that. So there's there's takers and then there's leavers and the takers are essentially, once the agricultural revolution hit, there it's the people who um, 
fed, got the most out of that and how they came to store their food and grow their food. And they weren't reliant on the natural land mm-hmm. around them. It was, it was just a, a growth mindset, a growth mindset. And so this is the first time I've talked about this book. So I'm like, I'm like thinking through, there's so much to say about it. So I'm, gen- I'm trying to make it really brief, but um, yeah. And then the levers, the lever groups are those that respect the land and they know the balance of ecosystems and they and for three million years humanity was within this balance and within these bounds it wasn't until the agricultural revolution that we just like have kind of gone off the deep end um and it and it having learned having studied ecology and and studied all these these environmental things i learned so much in that book um Mm. and i was like i thought i knew a lot of this, but it was, it was mind boggling how a 30 year old book can still be so relevant mm-hmm. and how we're not, we have not learned. Like we just mm-hmm. have not learned how yeah. to be in balance with nature still. Yeah. And we, we take and we exploit and we, we just, that's just the way we are. And so we yeah. have to listen to, listen to ancient wisdom and people who have been doing this for millennia. Yeah. Like we yeah. don't know everything. Right. And as long as we continue to try, like as, as kind of upper-class people, um, kind of their, their main priority, obviously, if, if, if profit drives every decision that you make, which it does, like we will continue to be on this trajectory, no matter how many meetings and councils of the party and, you know, like it's just just the, 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 the motions, right. We will continue to go through the motions until there is nothing left. And so it's, Yeah. Um, there has to be a, a massive values change, which seems daunting, but I, I do, I do have hope. I do have hope. I do too. Cause we can't not have hope. First of all, like it's, it's just hopeless. If we're, we start getting hopeless. Cause it's like, what, I, I can't go there. And yeah, then I, yeah. I also, you know, the book didn't say the words capitalism necessarily. It's it, it kind of reference to consumer mindset and things like that, but it, it really takes the, we got to break down capitalism. Like it's just hurting and I, I feel funny about that saying that, but now more and more, I'm like, we got to get rid of this. Like, let's bring it to the ground, you know? Yeah. Um, but then I was going to say something. Oh, and the, the end of the book really comes around to like this vision of what humanity could be if we were to live in harmony with nature, if we were to understand wow. our rules and our bounds, like it p- paints such a beautiful picture of how humanity can be these intelligent, sapient caretakers of the planet. Um, and we haven't learned that and it's yeah. going to be to our doom. But one thing that I've actually learned in this like world of like activism, where it can be, it can be, so you can feel like you're just walking on the edge of hopelessness, um, is that imagination is so critical. Cause I realized like, I think maybe two years ago or a year ago, something like that. Like one of, one of my mentors, like in the climate activism space was like, what does, he was saying that like someone prompted him to say, what does a world in which we have successfully kind of like essentially realize what you've been describing in this book like what does that smell like what does that sound like what does it look like and it's like I never even thought of that like it's like all I think about is the problem but I never went the step to like vision what the solution actually what that would look like in practice like what that I would actually create and when you don't have that like not only is hopelessness a step away it's like it can be hard to to keep going it can be hard to like even for people who are you know the, the big decision makers, like if they can't even picture it, it's like, 
it, it really puts a, a, a hurdle in, in the activism, puts a hurdle in the process of like trying to make massive change. And so imagination is so beautiful. And so it's, I'm excited this, that this book ended on that note, because I think that is what tend, has tended to be missing a lot um, from, the, from the dialogue manifestation I mean that's a big kind of buzzword is like okay I'm going to imagine it and and feel it and Mm -hmm. and using your imagination I love that not just for your self and your goals and your hopes and dreams for 2022 whatever but for the planet yeah and believe that that is coming and believe that humanity will bind together and we will solve these problems and what does that tangibly feel like I Mm -hmm. like that yeah. So talk talk a little bit about your climate activism and your relationship with the church. What group are you a part of? Yeah, so I'm I'm a part of an organization called Young Evangelicals for Climate Action. Um, and I should say evangelicalism as like a group is like a newer term, like a newer concept for me. Like I grew up, you know, like non-denominational Christian, and I but I went to an evangelical university for undergrad, which um, which was the first time I really encountered this culture and like. these various theologies that present in this uh, kind of sub-denomination or whatever you might call it. Um, Anyway, so Young Evangelicals for Climate Action or YECA um, essentially exists to mobilize young people in the church to act on climate change and to move their their faith communities to act on climate change. Um, We also work to kind of mobilize around holding our elected officials accountable, especially those who like claim Christianity as a reasoning for why they make decisions or their base, their voter base is largely evangelical or Christian, which tends to disproportionately be the Republican party now. Um, and cause a lot of times what we've, what I've seen personally at, after going to that university was that we have a lot of wealthy evangelical white evangelicals who use scripture to justify over-exploitation and, and justify harming our natural resources and therefore harming other people. And it's like, wait, how did you draw that from this Bible that we're reading, right? Um, And so essentially, the reason why I joined this group is because number one, I recognize that evangelicals in this country have a lot of the power and like are are the the people in these disproportionately in these decision-making positions. Um, And then also churches and faith communities in general are really powerful like uh, uh, communities of activism, like even in the black church in particular, like so much of the civil rights movement and so much of um, movements for black people and and, and equity and justice have been mobilized through the black church. And so faith communities are are groups of people who are already together because they have shared values. And how can you incorporate stewardship for the planet as a reflection of what God has asked us to do, but also a reflection of the fact that we love our neighbor and we love God and we love the creation that he made um, and, you know, using that as a, as a way to prompt people to be voters, to vote in their local elections and think about climate change and environmental issues when they vote, to talk about it from the pulpit and talk about the intersection between caring for the planet and being mindful of our use of natural resources and like what God has called us to do, right? And so like drawing these intersections for people that may not exist because they don't know much about it or because they've been told a certain narrative from their elected officials or from the people who have power and money in their life. Um, and so trying to make movement, particularly in that section, essentially, of, um, of Christianity. Uh, or even from the pulpit, like, they, like people will tell you. I mean, I, I'm an evangelical as well. Um, I may even be falling into the term of ex-evangelical. I'm not quite sure. I'm kind of like 
I'm like deconstructing a bit. I haven't been to church in a while. I think I had some religious trauma, some legalism, some guilt issues that mm-hmm. I haven't fully, you know, worked out with God yet. <laughs> so, yeah. but it, but, and I also think because so much of the evangelical community and the, the church culture was supportive of Donald Trump, mm-hmm. it just led me to rethink like, why are we, what are we doing in the church? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it seems like the only reasons that evangelicals would support the Republican party is on the basis of like homosexuality and abortion. I'm not going to get like too into those, but that's, that's, that's one of the only two of the only things that line up with, if we don't take care of the poor, that's what Jesus did. We don't take care of our earth. Jesus did. We don't love our neighbor the way Jesus did because all of those things tend towards a more social justice, environmental, dare I say, Democrat, liberal, you know, worldview. And why, why can't we not bridge that gap? Like what's, what's, what's going on? Maybe you have some insight there. So, I mean, and this is a big conversation, but one thing that I will say is that religion is, is a, a mechanism by which people have exacted power over poor, the underclass, right? Poor people in this context, black and brown communities, indigenous communities, right? It's a way to maintain power for rich white folks. It can be used that way and it has been used that way. Uh And I think that if people actually lived the way Jesus in the church called them to live, it would loosen their power. It would, it would take away the, the, the power that they've accumulated and hoarded and they don't actually want that. So it's, it's, I find it's a lot of lip service and that it really is wrapped up, not at all whatsoever in actual theology, but rather in the maintenance of one's power and wealth and how much you can control. Um, and so as long as people prioritize, again, profits and power and all of that over everything else, they will, their theology will never align with the actual gospel or, you know, Jesus, like Jesus was a liberal, a ra- like they would categorize Jesus as a radical liberal. But you, they would never say that, right? It's, it's like, and you even see now, you see people taking people, you know, recent historical figures like Dr. Martin Luther King, and somehow you hear, you know, you know, conservative Republican people like twisting his words and creating, like saying that Martin Luther King was, you know, like somehow reflected their values. Um, when in fact, if, MLK, if they were alive when MLK was alive, they would absolutely be among those who were actively opposed to him. Um, and so just seeing this like, a, a whole worldview construction that is on on fallow ground just like unsteady uh theology it's just it it's upsetting it's upsetting to see that be associated with um and people who are ostracized so anyway no, I this, is good to talk about this, forever. this is, <laughs> is good because I, I i've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately um a, a lot of environmental podcasts but also a lot of like Christian and like sorting through the process of how we got to where we are as an evangelical culture. And it's very interesting. Like if, if Jesus were of the Bible, Jesus of the Bible were to come back and like walk amongst us. Yeah. People would, Republicans would hate him. Like they would, they would hate him. And here's the thing. The gospel is for poor people. The gospel is literally for the oppressed. Like if you look in Isaiah, like Jesus came to free the oppressed, to, to, to bring security for the widow, right? Like 
that is the center of the gospel, not people in power, not people with money or security, right? So I can imagine how people, if they prioritize having wealth and power, that does not align. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right. It's threatening. It's threatening to the people in power, but it's under the guise of like, we're doing this because we love people and I, and the abortion issue is just like, that's their, like the driving force is we love children so much. I just, yeah, just a lot of things fall apart when you really yes. start poking at it. Mm-hmm. A lot yes. of things start falling apart. Um, yeah. I'm glad we got to touch on that. that yeah, me too. I haven't really talked about it. I've been like taking in information and like just kind of soaking in it and, and journaling and praying and like figuring out how I want to go forward from here. And it, when I do go back to church, cause I think I would like to go back to church. It, it will be a, a, a very, you know, science is real church. It will be a love is love church. It will mm-hmm. be a, you know, let's, let's love our neighbor. I don't know. So yeah, um, yeah. all that intersectionality is so important. Mm. Um, changing topics a little bit. What is shutdown STEM and academia? I saw that on your website and um, uh, I, I was, <laughs> you're like, oh yeah. I forgot yes. That. that was like two years ago. So I'm trying to like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it was two years ago. Okay. Yeah, I, was, I like, yeah. I understand kind of from what I understand, what, what I looked at it, it, it's like a we have to we have to respect the boundaries that academics are put under and um, like maybe I'm getting this completely wrong but um, like we they work so hard and we need to kind of give them a break but also understand that this is kind of this ivory tower complex of um, you know it's it's an exclusive look of how we interpret science and who has access to science. Mm-hmm. And so we're shutting that down so that more people, more voices of the oppressed, of the underprivileged can kind of have a, have a voice at the table. What is, is it, am I hitting them? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really wide, like a, it comes a lot, the shutdown STEM. Um, But in the context that I and others were really talking about, it was really thinking about the way that, so this ivory tower reality that academic academia has like propped itself up in, um, creates a, a lot of really harmful dynamics. So ranging from the work culture and the expectation, and, you know, like the, the pressure put on faculty and students, um, but also like the disproportionate, again, this is around the time when we're talking, like we were really having a lot of like conversations specifically about the black experience um, in a variety of contexts. And in particular, in this case, academia and in wildlife biology and conservation, usually if you're doing research, you're in some backcountry remote area and usually a lot of school even just like a lot a lot of big schools are in rural areas and so when students come out to you know do research and um, be in labs at different universities and then go into even more rural areas to actually do the research there is a lot that is not considered or even like a concern it seems like for the university as it concerns the safety of the safety and well-being of those students and so a lot of the conversations one of the um people who was really leading this effort, her name is um, Danielle, Dr. Danielle Lee. Um, and she was talking, she, 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 she got on Instagram live many times. There was one particular time where she was just really talking about the, 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 the reality of, of black professionals in academia, her, her experience personally, as well as what she's seen. And she's like, you know, 
I come in as the ex. She's she was talking about, and I'm paraphrasing, but she had mentioned, you know, for example, she'll come, and she's a she has her doctorate. She's a, a mammal biologist. She'll be the expert in the room. Somebody will introduce her. She'll be giving a talk or get, you know, sharing information with a, a given group of like faculty or students or whatever. A white faculty member will introduce her. She'll kind of share the information and then they'll ask the person who introduced her questions or like ask them to like kind of verify and like just the kind of disrespect that she experiences in even at her most like she's peak acad academia as far as accomplishments go right like mm -hmm. there's no more degrees for her to get she's literally at the top and y'all still don't respect her expertise y'all still defer to the student the student hmm. over the her the teacher it's and so she i mean she, so there were so many conversations happening that span from the experience of the you know the actual the teachers and professors all the way to the students undergrad grad students um and for me like that resonated a lot with me in particular about the experience because my advisor who's a white woman for my masters um i felt safe with her i felt safe with her and she was very upfront with me. I, I was very surprised when she, we had to be the phone interview, our first interview for my coming into her lab. And she was like, this is in rural South Georgia. And I want to tell you what I've seen and what I've heard. And she, I'm talking about straight up racist. Like she went to, there's a museum down the street from our field site, because it's a plantation museum of some kind. And she and her mom went in because they wanted to see what, what was going on in the neighborhood. And they were, there was no black people around. They were openly saying racist things about like directly blatantly racist things about Obama and other black people to her and her mom. And of course she, you know, she popped off on him or whatever. And, but she told me that, like she told me everything she knew, which I was so, I can imagine if it was someone else, like another white person, like would feel really uncomfortable maybe doing that or would feel like, I don't want to scare this person off, but like you have to. Because how horrible would it have been if I moved my life to South Georgia, signed up to be in her lab, whatever, committed my life to this, and I get to I get to Brunswick, and I'm like, what is this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and have been surprised by a socially hostile environment and one in which it's just like, so I was so grateful for that. And she repeatedly asked me and like created space for me to talk about my experience. And then there were several things that happened over the course of my time there were like, Ahmaud Arbery was killed in Brunswick, like by the by the like by the marsh where we were doing our field work. And her husband, who were also like helped out with you know the lab, the um, her lab was like, I will go. You know, if you would like this, like you can like please take as much time off. I will go out there with you. Like I was out there by myself because it was COVID. I was out there by myself collecting data. He was like, I will go with you. And it wasn't even his research. Like he wasn't doing bird research. He's a you know a wasp biologist or something. And like they like went out of their way to really offer their time, the space, like their their physical presence, everything, their resources, everything. So that, but like that was that wouldn't have been everybody's experience, and that has not been everybody's experience in grad school and in being in different labs with, with different advisors who are usually pretty absent-minded about this stuff, um, or sometimes racist, <laughs> um, just straight up racist. And so there are so many experiences and and realities that we were kind of bringing to the table in the shutdown academia effort. I was not a, an organizer. I was just like supporting and like sharing my thoughts whenever they would, you know, I would be having conversations with people, but that was kind of some of the scope of what it looked like. And it also included like sharing a lot of resources about anti-racism through academic channels and with departments and kind of really holding our departments and our leadership and our colleagues accountable to like, you need to learn and you need to do the work to understand the context in which you are doing 
doing your career, carrying out your career in the context in which your students and colleagues are living in when they are Black and in academia. Um, and so that was, again, I keep having all these long answers, but that was somewhat of a summary of kind of what that encompassed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You were telling the story of your advisor and thank goodness she was so supportive and helpful and you had such a good support system because a lot of people don't have that. Um, and yeah. so, I, and then I forgot what, what the original question was and you and you wrapped it back around to shutting, uh, talking uh, about shutting down academia. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what we were talking about. But I was so yeah. engrossed in that 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 story. And, um, and I didn't realize Ahmaud Arbery was killed uh, in Brunswick. Like, I mean, I didn't yeah. realize you worked right there like that's so close yeah and it's not even and i always want to say like because people ask me about it often a lot and the, like that ex, that experience like i don't i sometimes i don't even want to bring it up i bring it up here just because it's relevant to like it's reflective of a lot of experiences that black people have where there was trauma like serious trauma that happened either to them or near them and now they have to still go out and collect this data about animals um but ahmaud arbery's family and ahmaud arbery like I cannot even imagine the the pain and the hurt, and I in, in no way and will not center myself in that tragedy. Um, it, it just was that that entire reality, the fact that Black people in Brunswick are living in that reality. I I could leave Brunswick. I left, right? I was just there to come in, dip in, get some research, and leave, which I'm realizing is not the best way to do research. That's another thing. Um, <laughs> so but it's just I, I want to be clear that that is not. The tragedy was Ahmaud Arbery's murder mm -hmm. and not it being in proximity to me. Like, so mm -hmm. I just want to, to, to say that. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Like you want to, yeah, I know that's a, that's a horrible evil, like just yeah. senseless, mm -hmm. so many senseless um, losses um, yeah. and we must do better. And, and you have such a great like platform of followers and yeah, talk about using your platform, your, your, the social media to um, instigate change. And um, not only in the past two years, but like in conjunction with this question is like, how do you use your platform? And do you think now looking back, like, I guess, two years later from a lot of the big um, Black Lives Matter movements and things like that, do you think it has helped? Like, do you see change? Do you see hope there? Do you see progress? I, I do. And honestly, I think the biggest progress that has happened with like the platform that I have and like the, this is just the act of being active online and using Twitter and Instagram as a, a platform to, to share and talk has been the fact that Black people who are in these spaces have been able to be connected to each other. So like, of course, you know, when you tweet something, an idea or share something, a thought or, you know, whatever, and a bunch of people catch on and like start act, you know, respond, you know, in their own lives, emulating that or, or, or applying that in some way, that's great. Um, but for me, the most meaningful thing that has come out of it is that a bunch of Black people have gotten to know each other and we've been able to organize together around a countless number of of, of topics and and to make lives better life better for ourselves and for our community our black community that is of course spread across the united states um and really like build power together and build like coalition building and like prior to that prior to me being connected with like the hundreds now of black biologists and conservationists and 
scientists that I'm connected with now, I felt isolated and pretty powerless. Like I remember being constantly discouraged because even when I was a zookeeper and I was like, I'm the only black wildlife professional in this institution and doing whatever little thing I could to, to address that, you know, I would invite high school students from Nashville who were in Title I schools to shadow me for the day and participate in animal care and all this, like trying to do my part. But that, like doing that alone was, again, discouraging and felt like it was happening in isolation and I couldn't really do much to actually change the realities that Black people were having in this field. But then when you get a bunch of Black people together who are not in the same geographical space, right, that you would never have known existed outside of connecting online, it's like, wow, now we're meeting with each other and people are creating entire movements like to, to raise literal actual money and to build institutions of their own. Like that kind of collaboration is by far hands down the most valuable thing that has come out of social media. And that's, that's what I think I would like to be able to do in the future. Yes, I'll continue to share my thoughts and resources and try to help steer whatever cultures I'm a part of, whether that's academia or, you know, conservation or whatever, like to help steer the culture in a way that I think is equitable. And not that I have that power as an individual, but to contribute to that. Um, that's great. And I'll continue to do that. But like, I want Black people and people of color and Indigenous people to be able, like, however I can uplift other people who are doing this work and allow them to be seen by other people like them who are also doing this work and create connections, that, that is my ultimate goal um, and what I would hope that my platform can continue to do into the future. Yeah, and you do that so well. I mean, I seriously, <laughs> I Google search you and it's like, she's in this interview and you're in this and you've interviewed here and you've done this. I mean, you just are, you're just doing it, man. Like you're all over the place and it's so great to see you. I'm so glad, I'm so glad Thank you're you. doing it. And people have chosen to uplift me and that's the only reason why I'm even doing this and, and the people, mm -hmm. I even had this opportunity. So it is because of, of the, the larger group, the larger community for sure. Mm, yeah, that's so cool. That's beautiful. So there is, there's such hope. Um, yeah, I love, I love that. Like, like sometimes I hate social media, but I also love that we have been able to connect. You can find a community for everything you're interested in and mm -hmm. find someone who's like you and, and not feel so alone, especially yeah. during the pandemic. Um, so it has been a gift. It can, it can be a curse, but it has yes, been a <laughs> in a lot of yeah. ways too. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm looking over my notes. I want to make sure I didn't. Is there anything you want to say that you didn't get to talk about? Um, anything else with the um, Young Evangelicals for Climate Action? Anything else with the, the anti-racist work you're doing? Um, anything that you have to and not really about me. The only thing that I would say is that what I think is so critically important, one of my friends, Melody, who I work with and have worked with for years with Young Evangelicals for Climate Action, she said something. She said, the future is local is a phrase that I heard her say. And that phrase is so powerful to me because I find that, you know, you have a lot of institutions, you have a lot of individuals, you have a lot of groups, organizations who are like, how can we do better? Like, you know, they want to, they're trying to figure out like, how do they do better? And if your scale of focus is only organizational, you're gonna miss a lot. Like we have to, as individuals, as part of organizations and individuals as part of institutions or whatever context we're working in, we have to personally be dedicated to our local context. So like, even if you work for like National Audubon, right? Or National this or National that, or do you know who's, do you know who's organized in your community around your local problems? Mm -hmm. Like, do you know the, the issues that, the, the black communities near you, if you are not black, or the indigenous communities near you, if you're not indigenous, 
the low wealth communities near you, if you are not low wealth, do you know what they're organized around, what their immediate issues are? How are you supporting those, those efforts? How are you listening, right? Like, even if it seems like there's a disconnect between your local reality and like the work you do at a national or different scale, like they are connected and they will inform how you make decisions at that national scale and in the various contexts in which you live and work and make, and make decisions. And so I encourage everyone, anytime I can, like find people organized around justice where you live, like where you live. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of my friends, Billy Allman, who's a a astrobiofuturist, what he calls himself, he specializes in biomimicry. He had this incredible like image he created about movement making. And he compared it to to murmurations of starlings. And he said, Mm -hmm. you know, the reason why Starlings form murmurations, murmurations is to avoid a threat. So whenever you see this beautiful blob of birds flying around, there's usually a little predator on the outside chasing them. They form these blobs because it's much more likely that they will all survive, that they, any individual in that flock will survive. And the way that they're able to move and turn and create these from a distance will look like beautiful works of art, but it's just a mechanism to survive. The way they do this on such a big scale is because each bird is paying the closest attention to the seven or so birds immediately around it, right? They're not only looking at the bird all the way at the front or the bird all the way over there. Like they can only make that massive movement with that much coordination by looking immediately around them. And to me, that was such a revolutionary idea. Um, And so I apply that everywhere I go and I share that everywhere that I go because it's true. Like we have to know and be involved in activism and justice uh, realization where we are regardless of what we do for work. And that will help to create this ripple effect that allows for a collective murmuration in the face of the various threats that we're, that we're having to encounter and problem solve around. Um, so that's really the, the only thing that I would want to share, I think. That's a beautiful image. That was, I mean, that's, I couldn't think of a better way to end. Um, I just love that Im- imagery. I've never thought of that either. So thank you. Really for awesome. <laughs> Okay, so what is your favorite field story? So my favorite field story actually start, starts as my least favorite field story. Um, it was towards the end of my all my data collection over the course of my master's degree. And I was um, out in the very hot, very humid, very still aired <laughs> Georgia salt marsh, um, salty marsh. And I was feeling pretty overwhelmed. It was about to be right when I was gonna write my thesis and process the data and I was worried. I'm like, well, do I have enough data points? Like, do I have everything I need? And there was a lot going on socially that was causing its own stress. And um, so I went out to the marsh and I was so emotionally and mentally exhausted that I actually like had an actual panic attack. Like I I started hyperventilating and I, that's not something that I really have experienced before at all, except for maybe one time I started hyperventilating, but I couldn't breathe. I was crying. Like it was very, it was wild. And so I, by yourself, by myself. Yes. Actually, my, my friend, Alex was in a different part of the March, but we were not together. Alex Um, Troutman. Troutman. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I sat down, I like walked to the edge of the marsh. It's right on the edge of like a big tidal river that leads to the ocean. And I, I sat down and I was in tears and I was so overwhelmed. I really felt, I mean, just the hopelessness had kind of set in and just the, you know, the, the, then the saltiness and the heat all together. I sat down and I had my mud boots on and I was just literally sitting on the mud, on the grass, I had my feet in the water and just trying to calm down. And all of a sudden a dogfish shark swam over my feet 
And I was, I had never, I've never seen, I'd never seen a shark in real life, like in the wild ever, like in an aquarium. Yes. Never in real life. I was like, I was like, have I passed out? And I'm, I'm making this up. Like what is going on? And I just sat there stunned. Right. Like I made a video. I was like, y'all, I'm not going to believe this. Like I was freaking out then. So I'm sitting there like processing this dogfish shark. And I look up and a pod of dolphins that also included a baby were swimming and diving up into the air and into the water in front of me. And I just, I had already been crying because of stress. I started crying because of how beautiful that moment was for me. That was like all of these things that are, were mixing together in my head, stress about school, stress about justice for black people and like the realities that we're living in and you know, everything personal, existential, all of it had dragged me down so much that I felt like I could not even keep walking in the marsh. And then the marsh saved me. It was like the marsh came to save me. And it like, I had, and you know, so there was the shark, there was the pot of dolphins that just kept swimming, kept swimming. And then by the time I like had enough, like that had energized me so much, I got up and I started walking back kind of into the interior of the marsh and like roseate spoonbills and wood storks and great egrets flushed up out of a tidal creek. And I just have never, like, even now I feel like I'm gonna tear up just thinking about it. It was like one of the most beautiful and tangible examples of like, how much being connected and being able to just see the details of the natural world that we are living in, how, first of all, how much of a, of a privilege that is, because where I grew up, I never, I never thought I would see a roseate spoonbill in my, in real life. As a, I knew about, I never thought I would ever see one. I never thought I would see a dolphin or a shark in the wild, never from my Philadelphia, you know, neighborhood. Yeah. The fact that I had the chance to see that and that it healed me. I was like, man, we need as many people especially people who are exposed to so much trauma of, of the social realities in which we live, like people to just be able to like witness this. This is so healing. It's rejuvenating. It like, it brings you back together and brings you to life in ways that I cannot describe with words that I cannot possibly describe. Um, and so it really just was a privilege to be able to see that up close and like witness just a burst of biodiversity in the midst of the most miserable moment of my entire like academic career. Um, and so, yeah, that's my favorite field story. And I will always kind of think back to that day as like a source of hope and to remind me that there is healing when I choose to like, sub, you know, immerse myself in outside and, and connect myself with the world around me. Um, because there's just so much, there's so much beauty to see when you stop and you look and you pay attention. So that was like, that's, that's, my like, God, that's like God speaking to you. That's, that's it really was. Mm. I really, and I really just was thanking God. And I, I was like, it was like God saw me. And one of the, my, when I was out there in the marsh, I studied seaside sparrows. And almost after that, I like the song, His Eyes and the Sparrow, which is a hymn that I, you know, have known my whole life. Like it just like hit me. And I was like, oh, I feel like I'm going to cry. Oh man. But it's just like, God sees every detail. And it doesn't mean it's not suffering. And it doesn't mean that this sparrow isn't going extinct. And it doesn't mean that people are not suffering, right? Like we see it happening right here where I'm doing this research, right? But like, at the same time, somehow in the midst of the chaos and the unbelievable amount of pain, like these moments are possible. And it's like, how, you know, it's just like, how is that possible? But um, it's, like a, it's like a reminder that we can, we can be, you know, call it what you will, God, spirit, universe, whatever, the energy, positive light, we can be love to other people. Like it's just, it comes in and, and it's a, and that's why we need nature too. Like we need it to heal us and we need to protect it so that it can continue to heal us. And that we can continue to spread that love and joy and positivity uh, to others because it really is healing to be out there. 
It is. Um, it is. Even, yeah. Even in the hardest, yeah, the hardest field work days that I've had, I, I'm, I'm still like, wow, I get to be out here. Like this is mm-hmm. incredible. Yeah. So thank you yeah. for sharing that story. That's beautiful. Of course. <laughs> Very, very inspiring. You are an inspiration. Continue to do to do the work. I'm sure you probably hear that. And I don't know if that like, but you like you are. I mean, you've done it. You've put the effort in. You've you've been out there and you are making a name to help so many people and to help our planet so well. So thank you, Tina. I appreciate that. I give I give honor to my ancestors and people who support mm-hmm. me and to God for anything mm-hmm. that I'm able to do um, in this space. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's so lovely to have you. And it was so nice to meet you and talk and hear your stories. And um, yeah, I I hope that we will become friends um, down the road. So yes. Thank you so much, Laura. It's been an honor to be on. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please rate and review it. Please share it with a friend. Please share it on social media. Anything you can do to help support and spread the word is essential and so, so appreciated. So yeah, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast, whether you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever. I personally like Podbean. I don't know why. I just really like it. Hit subscribe and be sure to get alerts for other episodes that are coming. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. And remember... Ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet.